Today's episode of the SSPX podcast will continue our apologetic series by starting to look at the marks, the characteristics of what a true religion needs to be in order to be true. How can we distinguish a false system of belief from a true one? We'll look at that during this week's and next week's episodes. Today, we'll start with the concept of unity. Everyone performs their worship a little bit differently. Even different regions can be different in their worship. Is this unity? You can find notes to all these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Hanos for episode number 19 of the Apologetic Series. Father Hanos, great to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well, Andrew. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, So last time we were talking about the fact that a religion, in order for it to be the true religion, has to be, has to have unity. There has to be one set of of creed, of ideas, of of worship, etc. And we're going to continue on with the other three things that a true religion must have. Um, But let's take a little bit of a step back. These three, these four things that we're talking about, the unity last week and and the three things we're going to be talking about this time, this is what's called a mark. So what do we mean by by a mark um, of religion? So, So a mark in general it's good to talk about this because obviously we want to know what we're, what we're referring to. Um, but say, generally speaking, a mark, let's say what really designates something as this precise thing and not as something else, right? So you can have, I don't know, marks that we're human beings. You can have a mark that something is a cat or something is a tree or whatever, right? So basically what we mean by these marks, they're sort of essential characteristics that we use to recognize what the thing is, right? So we point out a few different, say, characteristics of a mark. Um, First, it should be easier to recognize than the thing itself, right? If it wouldn't be a very good mark, if it was harder to recognize than the thing itself, right? It's like kind of like a sign of Mm -hmm. the thing. You have a very poor sign, you know, if it's hidden behind trees and you can't see it at all. So it's got to be easy, obvious to recognize. Um, so easier to recognize than the thing itself, visible or obvious in some way. Again, those two things are obvious. And then lastly, it has to be somehow essential to the thing, such that it should never be absent from the thing. And also, it should not be found in something else. So for example, if um, we're talking about a human being, the mark of humanity, right, is going to be like rationality, the fact that we can think, the fact that we can reason. And so if it's going to be considered as a true mark of being human, it is something that should be found in every human being, at least the capacity to reason. And it should not be found in anything else, right? Because it's something which is essential to being human. So okay. When we talk about the marks of the true religion, basically what we're saying is these are things that are characteristics of the true religion that have to belong to it, so much so that it cannot be without them, and also that no other religion has them. Only the true religion is going to have them in the strictest sense of the term. 
Um, and that's the case because right, we're talking about the true religion. We're talking about the religion that God founded. So if God founded this religion, it means that there should be some marks of his that he's impressed on this religion that show that this religion comes from him and no other. So basically we're talking about something in the realm of what we call a, a moral miracle. So something that only God can do. It takes a divine power to cause these marks. And so as we go through it, I didn't really mention it last time because we spent so much time talking about uh, the necessity for the true religion to be one. But as we go through it the, this time, um, I want to try to, to point out what is, let's say, what really is uh, the characteristic of the true religion, which is most obvious when it comes to each of these marks, right? So how each of these marks shows that this thing really comes from God. Okay. So when you say that it, it can't be found in other places, are you talking, are, are you saying that each of these four marks can't be found in uh, another religion or can another religion have one or maybe two of these marks, but maybe not all four of them? It's actually a disputed question, but um, okay. among theologians, but uh, for the most part, they will say, if you understand it in the very strict sense of the term, so the this mark as being something as, that is a moral miracle, something that comes only from God, it can be found only in the true religion. And we'll kind of mention, you know, how, so obviously you can say another religion is one, you know, I don't know, you have one Islam, sort of, um, right? right? So... Obviously, it can be one, but not in the same way the Catholic Church is one. And that's what we're going to try to draw out as we go through these. Okay. So let's look at the first mark then. What is the first mark that uh, that exists in the Catholic? Well, we've already looked at unity. So I guess right. that would be the first mark. So then what's the next one, Father? So um, I'm actually going to skip ads. So normally say one holy Catholic apostolic. I'm actually going to skip to Catholic now because okay. uh, the mark of unity and Catholicity are very much united, as as we'll see. So, okay. um, so I'm going to talk about Catholic. So, what do we mean when we say the Church has to be Catholic? Um, so, Catholic is a word comes from Greek. Basically, it means universal, right? So, it means that the, the true religion, whatever it may be, has to be universal. Um, so, why do we say that? Why do we say the true religion has to be universal? Let's say, if this religion comes from God, and we said if it's the true religion, obviously it has to come from God. Um, and also assuming, once again, of course, God is all good, all perfect, already talked about those, right? the fact that God wants all men to reach him, right? he's given us this uh, supernatural end, a purpose which goes beyond this life, and God, let's say, assuming God's not sadistic and he kind of gives a purpose without giving the possibility to ever realize that purpose, um, then he would want this religion to reach all men, right? So that as many as possible can um, be influenced by this unique, so that we already talked about the mark of unity, right? So this one way of reaching God, it has to extend to all men. All men have to have at least the possibility of um, coming into contact with it, right? whether or not they use their free will to 
uh, embrace it or not is a different story, but they should have at least that possibility, right? So it should extend to all men. Um, <clears throat> and that's actually quite simple, right? It's just kind of that simply that idea. Um, the true religion should be that way because if it really does come from God, God wants to save as many as possible. So he should want this religion to reach all, if possible, or at least as many as possible. And so we'd make a distinction between, um, let's say, absolute universality, where it actually really does reach all men, or moral universality, where it reaches at least uh, a great number, a large, vast majority of men. Right, or, um, or it would be potentially uh, Catholic. It would, it would have the potential to reach everyone. Right. It's not just limited to like one tribe of people or one race of people Correct. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's got to be spent, something that's been throughout all men and uh, all nations, all, yeah, we'll see all those, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, so obviously God wants it. And when we say when God wants it, it's not like the same way we want something because we can want something in sort of this, well, it'd be nice if this happened, but, uh, you know. When God, we say God wills this, God wants this, we mean it in an efficacious way, which means he's going to be using his almighty power to make sure that happens, right? So it's not just something okay. that, let's say, he would want, but it may never be realized. If God wants it, really wants it, it happens. It happens, yeah. Anyway, so um, so a little bit what you were talking about for the, uh, let's say, the characteristics of that universality. So... Um, Obviously, it should extend to, let's say, it must be universal throughout space, right? So, and in fact, that's normally what we think of when we think of, you know, the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, that it spreads all over the world, right? Um, but it's not the only aspect, right? It obviously should also, if it's going to reach as many men as possible, it should also extend throughout time. Has should be some sort of universality of time. Once God has established a certain religion, it should uh, remain the same, and it should last throughout, well, until the end of the world. Um, also, it should be universal as regards to, let's say, uh, personnel. So kind of like what you were mentioning earlier, um, it shouldn't be limited just to a certain race or a certain class Persons. So, for example, if the religion is just, I don't know, um, only the poor people or the, maybe the people who aren't very well educated uh, adhere to it, probably an indicator that maybe there's not that much sublimity in this religion, and that's why, let's say, it only fools the uneducated. Um, nor should it be something that only appeals to the intelligentsia because... Um, then we would say, well, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's appeals more to those who have power or have influence. Um, so basically, if it's the true religion, it's something that everyone should find a home in um, with perfect comfort, right? So it should give those who um, are not very educated, it should, it should be simple enough that they can grasp the essential truths of it and it can they can love its simplicity and at the same time it should be so uh there should be so much depth to it that even the most educated persons should find uh plenty to think about right 
So it should be universal in the sense that it's not limited to one particular nation, one particular race. It's open to all men and also even all, all men of all different levels of uh, intelligence. Okay. And then last thing we point out, we say last characteristic of that universality is that it should teach all of the truths that God revealed. Right? So it can't just teach you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, it should be universal in proclaiming the totality of that truth. So all those things, that's got to be the characteristics of the Catholicity of the true religion, whatever true religion may be. Right. So assuming that God wants all men to be saved, these would have to be the characteristics of that. Okay. So can we see this universality, this Catholicity in the Catholic Church? Right. I guess that would be the next question. Right. So that's the next step where we try to say, so now we're going to take, this has to belong to the true religion. Now, which religion actually fulfills that? Um, so, uh, well, I think you put the notes for this online, if I remember right. So um, I won't go through all my scripture quotes that uh, that I list there, but you can we can mention several different ones where this is foretold in scripture. So for the messianic prophecies, for example, you know, in him shall all tribes of the earth be blessed uh, from the Psalms, etc. You can look up the uh, references for those in the notes that we're attaching. Um, and then also, of course, the command of Christ to his apostles, most famously, go teach all nations, as iterated in various uh, various ways at different times, right? So it's clearly the will of Christ, as mentioned in Scripture, that this religion spread to all nations. It's not something where he wanted it to be he wanted it to be held just to one particular nation for one particular time. Unlike in the Old Testament, the Old Testament God. Uh, revealed this um, just to the to the Jewish nation, and the the intention there was to so that they could um, let's say they could uh, preserve and protect this revelation from being uh, influenced by the the pagans. Um, now in the New Testament, that God has revealed the fullest revelation. Now He wants it to be spread to everyone. Right? So okay. that's let's say from the will of Christ. Now. Historically speaking, just uh, from you know the fact that this is the case after, let's say, a small beginning, which is not, let's say, it's not contradictory to the idea of Catholicity that this should this should the beginning should be small, but after that, very quickly, the church spread throughout the entire known world, um, and ever since then, it's been conspicuous for this, let's say. Uh, universal diffusion throughout the world, right? And I'd say at least the morally universal diffusion insofar as it reaches the entire known world, such that anytime a new part of the world is learned about, is discovered, uh, the first thing that happens is that missionaries go there. So you see that, for example, when we first began to have, European nations began to first have contact with the Far East, uh, some of the first to go there were the uh, missionaries, notably St. Francis Xavier. And then same thing for the uh, for the New World, where it was discovered, the first to come uh, were the missionaries to begin to convert. 
uh, to bring to bring this message that God revealed to to the rest of men. So you see that that's just a historical question, right? So that um, throughout history, the church has really been remarkable. The Catholic Church has been remarkable from that aspect, and you can look at pretty much any other religion you want, and it's not the case. Everything else is limited to a certain uh, certain area, a certain time. Maybe it's not opposed to being spread. Some actually are opposed to being spread to other races or nations. But even if it's not opposed to being spread to that, it doesn't really happen so much. Right. So um, anyway, um, yeah, so that universal diffusion is evident from history in the Catholic Church, which okay. I'm not going to get too much into the history. but Sure. No, that makes sense. So, so that makes sense now. Why you're you're putting Catholicity right after we talked about unity, because those two do really tend to to kind of work together. Yeah, exactly. So, when you talk about it as a mark, you remember from a mark, we look only at the most obvious uh, part of the characteristic, right? So, obviously, you can talk about, let's say, the Catholic Church's um, universality throughout different levels of intelligentsia, for example. But it's not going to be what's really the most obvious. So for Mark, we clue in on what is most obvious, most clear. And for that, it's going to be, let's say, the church is spread throughout place and time. And what really puts that in the realm of the moral miracle is when it's united to the mark of unity. So this is where unity, once again, really comes in as a mark. Um, it's remarkable how the church throughout times and places, cultures, nations, empires, everything, has spread all over the place and yet remain, remains essentially the same. Right? Mm -hmm. Like we were mentioning last time, there can be some accidental, minor changes, but the essentials are still the same. And that's something that's really, you know, it's beyond the realm of human possibility. You can't, human beings, if we, let's say, if we want to remain the same, maybe we can do that if we limit ourselves to a very small little area in a very small time. But right. to be spread throughout many different cultures, many different nations, many different times, and still, um, still maintain that unity, so that that's something that's in the realm of a moral miracle. That's something that has to have God's assistance. Otherwise, it just it can't happen. So that's why when I'm, we talk I'm thinking of, kind of off the top of my head of, of another human invention, like uh, like democracy, for instance. You know, very different in the Greek place uh, in in Greece where it was first founded in ancient times versus French Revolution versus America today versus all the other places. Yeah, there's some core concepts that are sort of the same, but democracy is widely different. There's all different sorts of types, and and certainly the doctrine isn't the same. So that's a that's a human invention. That's a belief system or a ph philosophical system that's totally different across all different times and places. Whereas you look at the Catholic Church, and that's there's this through line, not only just of kind of how it's done, but of doctrine and theology and all of the stuff that goes along with it. Right. Maybe it's a poor analogy, but I don't know. <laughs> no, that was good. The, I mean, there can be many different ones as well. But yeah, it's basically that idea that. You know, um, it's really something that goes beyond human capacity to have something that's so widespread, not only just through, you know, if you think about democracy, I and mean, really, 
you had it in the uh, the ancient Greek times, and then there was what uh, a couple, almost two millennia of uh, gap before it came up again, right? Right. So right. Um, the fact that it goes throughout so much time, so such widely different places, and yet remains present and the same, something which yeah, it goes beyond the possibility of human beings to come up with something sure. like that. Interesting. All right. So that is, that's Catholicity. And then again, kind of going back to unity as well. Uh, the next mark then would be holiness. Right. So um, <clears throat> when we move on to holiness, so first of all, what, what do we mean by holiness? Because there's all kinds of different definitions of holiness these days. Um, so holiness, let's say most correctly, consists in union with God, right? That's what makes a person holy, is when they're united to God. Um, and let's say if we're talking about from a moral perspective, God as the supreme uh, norm of morality or the supreme norm of rectitude. It's what makes a person uh, just from that perspective, right? Morally speaking. So um, if you want another uh Explanation of holiness, St. Thomas Aquinas will say that holiness consists in um, a steadfast union with God and a spotless purity. So basically, uh, purity which you know uh, separates one from whatever would uh, dirty or sully the person, the, the, the character. And um, secondly, a steadfast union, let's say something that it doesn't change, right? Because we can be, let's say, very good for a little bit, but then we easily change because we're human. So holiness is something that's going to have both those characteristics, that steadfast union with God, and at the same time, that um, separation from whatever would dirty or sully the, uh, the soul. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so that, um, that union with God... Um, it corresponds, say, on the moral order, it's going to correspond uh, with the order that he created. So um, when we see things in this, uh, morally speaking, we know a person is virtuous whenever we see that they are acting according in a reasonable way, according to what our reason tells us is right. And then you also have you know, the other commandments that have been revealed by God. But So basically, holiness means that union with God. So, why should the true religion, why does it have to be holy? The reason is actually very simple. It's just that um, if the true religion comes from God, which it has to, but it's true, then it's going to lead back to him. And um, we can only expect that it reflects the things of God. If God is holy and this religion comes from him and leads back to him, it also must be holy. Right? So it's, right. it's actually pretty simple um, and something that we would only expect. So if there's anything in a religion which was evil or something that was maybe just a bit, I don't know, weird or debasing or shameful, something like that, obviously that religion can't come from God right? because um, whatever comes from God can't contain those things. Because God is all perfect. So if there were human sacrifice or immorality or cruelty, something like that, 
if that was really promoted by the religion, uh, then that religion could not come from God. It's important to make a distinction there, though, right? So, um, yeah. if the uh, that has to be the religion, we have to look at what the religion itself promotes, right? Because we're all sinners. Every religion is composed of sinners. Um, and because we can misbehave ourselves and everything like that, um, you can't look just at what certain individuals do. You have to look at what the religion itself teaches and upholds. Okay. So if the religion itself upholds what is good, even if some of its members, even if many of its members are misbehaving themselves, if it is upholding what is good, um, then it can still be the true religion. If even if its members maybe are uh, externally speaking upright people, if the religion itself um, teaches something which is morally depraved, something that's a little bit wrong, uh, then that religion can't come from God. Right? So we look at the religion itself when it comes to that. Okay. And and just as for those who may be saying, well, what about this controversy in the church? What about this controversy in the church? What about et cetera? So there's, there are lots of examples throughout the history of the church of people acting badly. And sometimes in the name of the Catholic church, we are going to tackle those in future episodes. We're going to have five or six episodes actually just on those. So for those people who are ready to pounce on those, hold on, we got you covered. Just wait. But that's a little bit of a sidebar. Sorry, father. Go ahead. No problem. Good. It's a good sidebar. Okay. So, so is the Catholic church then holy is how, how can we, how can we tell that the teachings of the Catholic church are holy? All right. So when we look at, so we looked at the holiness as being a mark necessarily belonging to the true religion. Now looking at the Catholic church more specifically, um, when we look at the holiness of the Catholic church, we say the church is holy um, in three ways. It possesses that mark of holiness in three ways. In her means of sanctification, in her members, and in her charisms. And I'll explain each of those. So, in her means of sanctification, right? So, what we say there is that basically, um, and this, again, this is just common sense. If the religion really does come from God, if the Catholic religion really does come from God, it should have the means of sanctifying men. It should have the means of uh, bringing holiness to souls or uniting souls to God. Excuse me, that's what holiness means. Okay. Um, and you can look, so we can look, for example, first at Scripture. Um, again, you can see some of the different quotes, but I'll just mention a few. Um, St. Paul, and I think it's the first epistle to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? So God wants us to uh, to be saved. And then again, St. Paul in the epistle to the Ephesians, um, Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So, um, that's part of Christ's will. He wants his church to produce fruits of holiness. Um, again, that's the, that's the purpose for 
the uh, for the true religion that God founds. He wants men to be united to Him. He wants men to have that holiness, um, and that's going to be the case. Let's say both on a heroic or extraordinary level, and also on an ordinary level. Right. So the church should have those means of producing that holiness for, let's say, all of us as a kind of an, on an ordinary way. But even going beyond that to a certain level and, and uh, producing extraordinary heroic holiness in some, the ones we call the saints. Um, anyway, so we can look at that again from Christ's words. He clearly wanted that to be the case. And then look at the history, look at the, you know, the facts themselves. Um, so look at the means that are offered by the church, the means that she uses to teach men, to sanctify men. And there we can see her doctrine, her moral standards. There's nothing in those which in any way is a little bit, seems a little bit shameful or wrong. Um, and actually quite the contrary, it's not an exaggeration to say that the church Catholic Church represents the highest standards of morality um, in the world, right? The highest standards of nobility, of virtue, all those things. All those things that we know by our reason, these these are good things. The church is going mm -hmm. to represent, you know, the highest level of that. Um, so you will, for example, you see how the Catholic Church upholds uh, self-sacrifice even to a heroic degree, something that we all know is something beautiful when a person lays down their life for another or whatever, right? You see how the church honors that, upholds that. This is a great, this is a beautiful standard. Um, the Catholic Church also upholds the exercise of charity. Uh, and you have that many of the different religious orders, some of which are unfortunately almost extinct these days, but, um, but nonetheless, the spirit is there to uh, go out to the dregs of society, those who unfortunately most people don't care about, and to try to care for them and try to help them. Um, even the less spectacular virtues like humility or modesty or uh, simplicity, those things also the church uh, upholds. Um, Anyway, and if you look at all those things, you can see that the church really it represents the highest moral standards, which I would say is precisely the reason why people are particularly scandalized when they see moral depravity in the clergy or in uh, a Catholic man or woman. Mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, it's also the reason why the church's enemies are so... Know, happy, they kind of, you know, they gleefully publicize every uh, scandal they can find among the clergy precisely because, let's say, everyone knows whether they want to recognize that fact publicly or not, deep down they know that the church gives the moral standard for the world at large. So everyone recognizes that her clergy and her members ought to be holy. They should right. be holy. And it's precisely when they aren't that there's such an outcry, as, as there should be. Right. Um, it's, it's not, it's not a super, uh, it's not super, super shocking for anyone. I guess it should be shocking for anyone. I'm choosing my words here carefully. It's, it's less shocking when 
say, uh, an atheist or someone who professes to be a Satanist or something is accused of something horrible versus when Father Hainos would be accused of something. There's, there's a big difference between the two. In one of those, we're shocked. In one of those, we're not. What's the reason? Well, it's because Father Hainos is supposed to be more upright yeah. than others. I might not be that shocked about myself, but um, well, hopefully we will. Really, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the case, right? So, and it's it's right. kind of it's kind of the exception that proves the rule, right? Because even yeah. if even if everyone's at which you see that oh, the church is not holy, and it's so I don't know gleefully publicized these days, precisely because the church represents the standard. And that's always, unfortunately, whenever you have, you know, the person who uh, should be the holiest is not. It's, uh, when they say, the corruption of the best is the worst, right? Um, and there's a lot of truth to that. And that's also, you know, in a certain way, whenever we can proclaim that, oh, well, these people who should be holy aren't, in a certain way, that kind of gives me an excuse for doing whatever I want, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So... Anyway, so basically the church, um, the reason why everyone expects that of her is because she has the means to produce that sanctity right, in her members. Um, and then moving on from that, so the church has the means to produce this sanctity and also, let's say, the holiness in her members, the, those means actually bear fruit. So... Um, once again, Christ founded that church, founded his church to sanctify men, to lead men to ordinary and even heroic sanctity. Uh, you know, and you can mention again some other quotes. I'm come that they may have life and they have it more abundantly. That's why he came. He wants us to have that. Um, even heroic, on a heroic level, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Right? So he wants us to reach even that level. And obviously, it's something which is uh, very extraordinary to have heroic sanctity, but we would say because Christ wants it, if his will is efficacious, we would expect that it would be fulfilled at least sometimes. Right. Um, anyway, and then again, we can look at history, right? So history tells us, I'm not going to go into all the details, but history tells us that uh, there's never been a lack of some who exercise heroic virtue in the church. There have never been many. But there have always been some. Even nowadays, there's mm -hmm. still some. Um, so once again, we wouldn't expect that this apply to all the members of the church, especially when it comes to the level of heroic holiness, because heroic holiness is something which is, it also is on the level of a moral miracle. So something which um, requires God's special assistance to uh, to occur, right? God has to really specially assist this person to raise them to such a heroic height above what normally human beings are able to accomplish. And a moral miracle, even the level of uh, sanctity, by definition, a miracle is something that doesn't happen very often, right? It happened every day. Right. You wouldn't really call it a miracle. Um, so... It's something that doesn't happen that frequently. Um, so you wouldn't expect everyone to achieve heroic holiness. You wouldn't even expect everyone to achieve ordinary holiness. And that's the case because, uh, basically because of the effects of original sin. And even our Lord himself promised that there would always be sinners 
in the church. Right? You can think of the parable of the wheat and the cockle. So there's always going to be, unfortunately, there are always going to be um, sinners in the church. And we're all sinners. We can all do really, really dumb things sometimes. Sure. Um, but in any case, because of that, because of the effects of original sin and everything, we can't expect that everyone is holy, but there should always be some, let's say there should always be, I would say, many who have at least that ordinary holiness, ordinary level of virtue, and there should be even the few who have heroic holiness. And once again, throughout history, uh, you can look at all the stories of the saints and everything else and see that throughout history, there have always been some who have achieved even that height of the heroic holiness. Would you say it would be a necessity for someone um, who is showing this kind of, you know, kind of flipping it around a little bit, that if someone is being very, very holy, you know, extraordinarily holy, it is because of the Catholic Church. It's not because of their own uh, inherent virtue. So um, a person can certainly exercise a great deal of natural virtue, and there are many even non-Catholics who sometimes put Catholics to shame when it comes to uh, natural virtue. That's certainly true. Um, so can a person exercise natural virtue? Even that is going to be with the assistance of God. God can act outside the visible uh, parameters of the Catholic Church. We would say in most cases he does not, unfortunately, which is why you would see that, unfortunately, many people... Um, let's say, outside the church, they simply don't have access to all the means of sanctification that God offers inside the church. Um, and because of that, you know, obviously God still is going to offer them certain means of uh, perhaps acquiring virtue and hopefully learning more about the church and eventually joining it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it would be something that is very difficult and almost impossible to happen. Okay, so but, so there is there is holiness in its in its um, in in the ways in which it, it produces um, better people. That that's that's part of the the Catholic Church, or that's that would be a, a mark of the Church. This holiness coming directly from the the Catholic Church itself. Right. So because the Church is the unique um, religion which God founded, any grace God grants. He can act again, once again, God's not bound by uh, following, let's say, the precise external um, rights that the church has. He can act outside of that. Um, mm -hmm. But because that is the unique religion, right? We talked about it being the one religion. Um, anything God grants is going to be always with the object of eventually leading it to that, sometimes to the merits of okay. the church. Um, but it's always going to be without object of leading them to the church. Um, anyway, that gets into the question of outside the church, there's no salvation. Right. Um, which right. is uh, probably a slightly series. different topic. Yeah. Very different topic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so then uh, charism. So that's that's kind of what I was starting to ask about, I think, was yeah. the, the charisms of holiness. And those are only found in the Catholic Church. So the charisms of holiness, what we mean by that. Um, so that actually comes particularly from the last chapter of St. Mark's Gospel. I'll just read you the passage real quick. Um, 
These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they shall drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay their hands upon the sick and they shall recover. Right? So all these signs, miraculous signs that God promised would follow uh, his church. Um, <clears throat> so those things, once again, by their nature are miracles. And so by their nature they do not occur on a regular basis. If they did, once again, you wouldn't call it a miracle. Um, <clears throat> so they don't occur frequently. And when our Lord says that, you know, he doesn't give any qualification. He just says, these signs shall follow them. Um, he doesn't give any qualification. So let's say we would assume it probably would not extend exclusively to the apostolic age. But at the same time, um, he doesn't mention, let's say, um, anything about the measure in which it would be fulfilled. So it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily happen in equal measure from age to age. It could happen a lot at one time and less at another time. And in fact, you see that in the history where um, the faith is first proclaimed in a certain area. There are lots and lots of miracles that happen. Um, so, from, so first when the apostles were starting the church, that was the case. St. Francis Xavier over in the Far East, that was the case. Uh, with Our Lady of Guadalupe in, in, uh, in this part of the world, that was the case. Um, <clears throat> so you see uh, kind of more when God is initially starting or beginning to spread his religion more publicly, he tends to act with more of these charisms or miracles. Uh, to bring people, to make it more obvious that people begin to come. Once all those things have been done, though, they're part of the historical record. And to a certain extent, God kind of backs off and says, well, now you should leave all that because you have the record. This is what happened. Right. Um, anyway, so those things do not necessarily have to happen in the same degree from age to age. Um, and yet they do happen, even uh, even. Currently, uh, you have, for example, some of the miracles at Lourdes and stuff like that, um, where those even really spectacular, miraculous events still do occur. Very rarely, but they do. And that, and that does seem to fit with what we understand about our Lord. He wasn't just willy-nilly walking around just making miracles happen, even while he was there on earth. I mean, the perfect example is Herod asking him to you know, do all sorts of magic tricks and our Lord didn't do that. So he's not just going to be zap, zap, miracle all day long throughout history. It's just not how he works. Right. That's when, when God does a miracle, he does it for a purpose. And this purpose is primarily to spread the true religion. So whenever that's part of it, that's when Christ did, does do all the miracles. He usually asks for an act of faith, right? Because he's act, asking, he's, he's trying to work on uh, provoking that faith, spreading his religion. And that's also why when Herod, who's not at all interested in the, the true religion, asks our Lord just to worship. Right. Okay. So that's that's holiness as a mark, and we can see that it exists in the Catholic Church in spades. Right. So um, let's say as a, as a mark, once again, if you remember we talked about um, the marks, something which is visible or obvious. So for holiness we go for what is most obvious. What is most obvious is going to be um, the heroic holiness of some of her members, right? So um, that will be the most obvious sign that uh, 
this religion really does come from God, that there are some who practice it who are really heroically holy, and that from age to age. So the fact that the church is never lacking such is what's going to be the most obvious sign that this religion produces fruits of holiness, and therefore it does come from God. And then that means we move on to the last of the marks of the church, which is ap- apostolicity. Apostolicity. I always stumble on that. Like, I always stumble on that one. <laughs> you should hear some uh, of the seminarians trying to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, This reminds me of back tangent. When I was like six or seven years old, uh, I was, we had a priest in, back in St. Mary's with a very strong French accent, and he kept talking about the 12 applesauce. And I go home and I was like, Mom, I, I don't know. Why is he talking about applesauce during the sermon? It's the 12 applesauce. Oh, apostles, right. Okay. So anyway, I still stumble on that one. I'm not going to yeah. entirely blame it on him, but it's convenient anyway. Yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> all right. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So, um, all right. So last one. So the apostolicity, what do we mean by that? Um, basically, it has having to do with or coming from Apostles, right? Apostle is someone who is sent to to teach. Um, so, in the context of the true religion, as a mark, um, it refers to let's say the mission which God originally entrusted to a few to spread on to the rest of the world. Um, that let's say there is an unbroken line of successors that historically leads back to those few. Right? So basically, what we're talking about here is that there has to be, for, for the mark of apostolicity, for the true religion, there has to be some sort of historical link between the religion we have today and God himself. Right? So when we talk about Let's say why the true religion must be apostolic. Why do we call that a mark of the church? It's not just something the Catholic Church made up because we are founded by apostles, but why does it belong to the true religion? Um, so basically, if, once again, this religion, the true religion, comes from God, it's the unique means of reaching him, and he wants to spread it to all nations, he wants to teach all men about it, um, one of several things would have to happen. Either he reveals it directly to each individual, right? And that he can do publicly, externally, or privately, internally. So publicly, well, de facto, we know that doesn't happen. God is not out there telling everybody, hey, this is me, and doing all these miracles to prove, and everything like that, right? So uh, we're talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. He no longer visibly walks the earth. So, publicly, God does not spread the religion himself directly to each individual man. Even privately, God also does not, excuse me, um, God does not reveal his religion directly to each individual. No matter what some people may claim, um, that private revelation doesn't occur. And the easiest way to know that that's the case is just to see that there are a multitude of people in uh, history, and even still living right now, who claim to receive that private revelation directly from God. And yet, 
all their private revelations contradict each other. And if it contradicts each other, does it come from God? Because that's against the principle of unity that we've already established. Right. And the fact that God can't contradict himself. Right. So right. if you have all these different private revelations that are contradictory, you know, if Catholics say, well, um, I don't know, our Lord Jesus Christ is God, you have to have grace, you have to, you know, you have to correspond with grace to be able to uh, to, uh, to, uh, to get to heaven, um, to receive God's grace. You have to, you, you also have to have that, you know, that correspondence on your own level. If there's someone else who says, no, that's not the case, well, those are contradictory. So mm -hmm. who did God reveal his religion to, you know, one or the other? So privately speaking, and if you think about it, just private revelation makes no sense because how is everyone going to know that this, you know, on a, on a public external level, how's everyone going to know this comes from God? You can't because it belongs to each individual, right? So de facto, individual revelation from God to one individual man, to each individual man, doesn't happen because all you have to do is just look at the fact that there are plenty of people who claim it and they all contradict each other. So then the other option, either God reveals it individually to each man directly, or he would have to re reveal his religion directly to a few men and using them as intermediaries, indirectly reveal it by means of them to the rest of mankind. Right? So um, those, are basically, those are the possibilities. God would have to um, confer upon some the power to uh, pass on his teaching and the duty of passing on his teaching. Right? So, and that's all we mean by apostolicity and why the true religion has to have apostolicity. It means that God chose some, we'll call them apostles, who are the few to whom he revealed it directly, and then from them, they spread it on to the rest of the world. Now, those men themselves, either they have to live till the end of time, which didn't happen, or uh, they have to have successors that possess that same power. And if there are successors, that has to be traced in an unbroken line back to those original few who were empowered by God himself. Right? So when I say postulicity, it belongs, why it has to belong to the true religion, basically it means that um, there has to be a historical link between the religion now, the men who teach that religion now, and God himself, to the intermediaries of those few to whom he first revealed it. Right. And if there's not, then that means it's either uh, private revelation to each individual, which we know can't happen, or it's public revelation that's still happening today, which we know isn't happening. So it has to be the other. Right. That's the only possibility. Okay. So that's why we say okay. the true religion, whatever religion that may be, has to have apostolicity, right? It has to have okay. a historical link to God. Okay. So then looking at the Catholic Church, does it fit the criteria? Right. So that's the next step. Um, so we talk about the Catholic Church. We talk about three different levels of apostolicity. So three different levels of the historical link with God and those apostles who originally founded it. Apostolicity of doctrine. So the church now has to teach the same doctrine, which was always taught, and was taught by those original few to whom God revealed it. Right? So um, that doctrine could be made more explicit over time, 
but it could never be added to or subtracted from in such a way as to essentially change the message given by God, right? So making it more explicit, that's just an accidental minor change, drawing something out more clearly. But if it really is something contradictory to that original message, something's changed. That apostolicity of doctrine has been broken. Um, so the apostolicity of doctrine, doctrine has to remain the same. Apostolicity of government. So this goes to the fact that um, Christ, again, empowered a few to then pass that teaching, that sanctification on to others. Um, so, for example, uh, and, it, well, and it's not just government, it's, it is also that power to teach, to, to sanctify, and, and to rule. Um, and what we mean by that power to rule on the moral level means to direct men on their, let's say, on their day-to-day -day life in the way in which they, um, they live a moral life, live a virtuous life, and are able to reach God. So that's, just to give one quote, um, from that, it's, it's the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, right? Go ye teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's uh, Office of Sanctification. Teaching them to follow all things that I have commanded you, right? So that's the power to rule. And teaching, of course, I mentioned them there as well. So mm -hmm. he's given certain uh, people the active function of possessing those powers. Um, he gave them to, those, to the apostles. But he didn't give them those powers as individuals. Um, he gave them to them partly as individuals, but also partly as dignitaries with a special function, right? Be and because they're dead now, the apostles have, have uh, passed on to the next life. Um, if he gave it to them only as individuals, well, that power would have ceased with them, which means that now there's no one to teach, no one to to sanctify no one to direct people in that way. Um, and so he gave it to them, we say, as uh, moral individuals. So like the president is a moral individual, right? And he has successors who receive the same power. So the apostles have successors who, who receive that same power, that same function, so that they continue um, you know, their successors can continue, or let's say the apostles can continue in their successors to teach, to govern, to sanctify. Right? So okay. that apostolicity of government has to be there. And of course, when you're talking about successors, you have to have a historical link between the current day successors and the apostles. You can look, um, <clears throat> well, in Rome, uh, they have, let's say, the... Um, historical documents that tell the lineage of each of the bishops. And certainly for St. Peter, for the Pope, they can trace that all the way back to St. Peter himself. Right? And the others, they can trace it back at least a very long way um, <clears throat> to show that there's that un unbroken historical link. And then lastly, we mean uh, apostolicity of membership. That's the third kind of apostolicity. Um, that means that the membership of the church must have su suffered no break. Right? So basically, the church must be numerically the same society now as it was founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, or founded by God, founded those initial few empowered by God. Um, what we mean by numerically the same society, let's say 
if a nation uh, is conquered, is destroyed, all its rulers are killed, all its people are killed, and then maybe later on, some centuries later or whatever, it's refounded using the same principles, so maybe the same kind of nation, but it's not numerically the same because it ended and then it was restarted. Like, for example, the, you know, the Holy Roman Empire was kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, I don't know, was it a little bit of a misnomer because the Roman Empire ended, and right. this this was a new thing that was bought. It maybe founded on the same principles, which is why they call it the Roman Empire, but it wasn't the exact same empire. Right. We're trying to make different. that pol political power link, but there's not really a link in any other way other than an idea. Right. So yeah. for the church, if she has the apostolicity of membership, it means basically there could have there could have been no great apostasy, the Mormons would say, um, mm -hmm. where the um, the church ceased to exist. Even if it was refounded on the same level, it's still numerically mm -hmm. different. It's a different church, right? Okay. So it would have to have those three levels: apostolicity of doctrine and the, teach the same doctrine. Same uh, government and same uh, membership be numerically the same society. And that, again, we look at history to ascertain that all those things have been the same. We look at the fathers of the church. Uh, we look at the continuity of the offices of the papacy, of the episcopacy, to show that um, that apostolicity does exist. So I'm going to, I'm going to, jump in with a question we can cut it out if you don't want to answer it or you can just tell me no i don't want to go there but just figured i'd jump in um sure could we say devil's advocate that the anglican church has ap ap i'm doing it again father apostolicity apostolicity i always want to put the wrong emphasis on the wrong okay <laughs> could we say that the anglican church has has this mark um, because even though there was a, a schism or a break, there the, the bishops of the Anglican Church still have that link. There's still a link there. Is that so, a valid argument or no? So they don't. For the Anglican Church, they do not have that link because they changed their right of uh, Episcopal consecrations. So um, they no longer have, at least, they no longer have the office to sanctify they wouldn't have the office of government, or you know, the the power of government either, because government comes from the top, right? You know, I mean, you can't say, "Oh, we're the same government." If you know, when you just try that in little local town, hey, we're 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 going to be a separate government from the United States, you know, right. but we're going to be you know our own government and still be the same, but we're not going to pay attention to them. No, no one's the the president and the I don't know state. Uh, National Guard, whatever, probably wouldn't uh, yeah. have the same understanding of it as uh, you would. <laughs> so, <clears throat> anyway, so yeah, once okay. you cut yourself off from that government, you don't have that either, which is going to be the case for the the, uh, the Orthodox Church. Even if they do, they do have the the power, the office of sanctification. They didn't change their orders, but um, the office to or to govern once you break your. Uh, link with the top, well, the government has got to be falling apart. Right. Okay. Thanks. I was, I was just curious about that because it seems like in some of these, some of these uh, sects that have broken away, that seem, there seems to be some of that link still, but uh, kind of like what you were saying before in the other analogy about the Holy Roman Empire, it's, it's more of a link in, in name only, or they're trying to still connect to that apostolic time, but it's, there is a break somewhere in there. Right. Just the fact that, okay. yeah. 
this is something that all of a sudden came up more than a millennia after the fact. There's a break there. Yeah, right. Okay. So then just to kind of recap uh, this as a, as a mark of the church, it's, it is pretty clear that there is this line of succession going from our current bishops all the way back to, to the apostles. Right. And so as, as a mark, apostolicity really only kicks in after you've uh, seen all the other marks, the other three marks. Um, and then once that has been done and you see, okay, well, you know, the Catholic Church is one, the Catholic Church is universal, the Catholic Church is holy. Um, let's say the Catholic Church as originally founded by Christ. And then you see apostolicity kicks in to show that, okay, the Catholic, what we call the Catholic Church right now is the same historical entity as that founded by Christ two millennia ago. Mm -hmm. So that's where that kicks in to show that this is the mark. This this is where the true historical link lies with God. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Father, thanks for, uh, I, I've, I've learned these in my catechism, but I haven't really had the time to, or haven't taken the time to go through them as, uh, as deeply as you helped us with uh, over these last two episodes. So thanks very much for taking You're the time welcome. from your seminary preparations for next year. We appreciate it very much. You're welcome. I'm sorry it went so long, but no, no, no. Something to listen to at least. Absolutely. Thanks, Father. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us, and God bless you.